Uh, if you've got a Bible, why don't you uh, grab it and we'll go to the book of Isaiah, chapter 53, uh, about in the middle of your Bible in the Old Testament. And uh, we're going to continue on in our journey through the Apostles' Creed. Uh, for the last several weeks and uh, for several more weeks up until the season of Advent, we're walking through this ancient uh, summary of the Christian faith. And it's a creed that has been adopted um, by Christians of all different denominations and traditions and worship styles, um, those that are more conservative in their theology, those that are more progressive, those uh, that are older, younger, all around the world and all throughout history. If you're looking for a summary of what are the core, uh, what is the core of Christian belief? What is it that we profess when we claim uh, to be followers of Jesus? Uh, I don't think there's a better summation than the Apostles' Creed. And so we're moving through it line by line. Last week we started in the st second stanza of the Creed, which introduces uh, Jesus into the story. And uh, we looked at his, uh, his promised coming as the long-awaited Messiah of Israel. We looked at his uh, conception, empowered by the Holy Spirit, his birth uh, of Mary, and looked at the idea that uh, because of this identity that he has, being both fully God and fully man, he and he alone is the only one who's able to bring together heaven and earth, God and humanity. He is the one alone who is able to mediate or reconcile uh, all the broken relationships within our world. And so uh, this morning we're going to move on to the next line about Jesus. And the line is this, that he suffered under Pontius Pilate. He was crucified, died, and was buried, and he descended to the dead. And so if you're following along on the banners over here, we're finishing up the first half here. And there's, in a very real sense, a, a climax to this story that we, uh, we're going to kind of leave you hanging with uh, this morning. Even though I think most of us know what happens uh, later, just, uh, you know, I'll just try not to spoil it for you too much. So... <clears throat> um, so in this, in this chunk of the creed, we're basically told of these five events um, that Christ suffered, he was crucified, he died, he was buried, and he descended. And the writers of the creed don't really go to great lengths to try to explain the meaning of any of these events. They don't try to help us understand why any of these things happened or had to happen, but they simply tell this as a story. They simply are acknowledging that this is what we confess happened in the life of Jesus. And what I love about that is that, again, at the center of the Christian faith isn't just a list of morals or doctrines or ideas, but at the center of the faith is a story. It is uh, the story of God, the creator of heaven and earth, speaking all things into existence, saying that it's good. And then you kind of have this narrowing of the story, this big God who's almighty and creator begins to reduce himself. And he sends his son. And his son, as he shows up in poverty, and then we're told today that he lives a life marked by suffering and then he's crucified, he dies, he buries, and he go, descends into the dead. And so it's almost like this giant funnel, their story starts huge and epic, 
and all of a sudden, it's not going the way we thought. God's getting smaller and smaller. Things are going worse and worse from one perspective. And so I want to walk through this line of the creed. And uh, we won't give equal attention to each of these verbs, but I want to try to show you how all of these things kind of work together to give us a picture of God that is revealed in the life, the suffering, and the death of Christ. And so um, one of the critiques that some people today have about the Apostles' Creed is that it seems to jump from Jesus' birth to his death. Right? It goes, he was conceived of the Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, and then he suffered and died. And if you read the Gospels, they give a, you know, a couple chapters to each of those uh, end posts, but the majority of the Gospels is the story of Jesus' life. Right? His teachings, his miracles, his ministry, uh, all that he did um, in those three years of ministry for the most part. But the creed doesn't have a whole lot to say about that. In some ways, it does skip from Christmas uh, to Good Friday. And uh, so, so the critics of this omission, so to speak, would say, isn't that reflective of so much of Christianity today? Like, think about the worship songs and the hymns that we sing in our church. We've got a whole bunch of Christmas songs, Advent hymns, that talk about uh, the birth of Jesus in the world. And then we have a whole bunch of songs about the cross, about the suffering and death of Christ. How many hymns do we have about the life of Jesus? How many hymns or songs do we sing about his teachings, his miracles, um, that sort of thing? Really not a lot. And so in that sense, I do think there is a good question to ask. Uh, are we prone to skipping over the life of Christ by just focusing on his, on his uh, birth and on his death? It is something to pay attention to. But there's a couple things I would say in defense of the creed. Um, first is that the Apostles' Creed and any other summation of the faith isn't meant to replace the Bible for us. Right? As we said the very first week, it's meant to serve as a lens through which we read and interpret the Bible. And so in just a few paragraphs, the authors are trying to put together uh, thousands of years of this narrative, and so they're just focusing in on kind of these primary bullet points that mark out this story of redemption. And so, like we talked about last week, when it comes to introducing Jesus, the creed primarily calls our attention to his identity, who he is as God's only son, as the long-awaited Messiah of Israel, as the one who is both fully God and fully human, and the one who has become the Lord and King of the universe. And so if that's who Jesus is, the Jesus in whom we profess our belief in the creed, then when we come to reading the Gospels and the rest of the scriptures, we read the stories of his life and ministry through the lens of his identity. So in that sense, I think the creed serves us really well in anchoring everything that he said and taught and did in his life to everything that he is as the Son of God and as the Son of Man. So the second thing I would say is that I think there is a word in the Apostles' Creed that is meant to summarize the entirety of Jesus' life. And it's probably not the word we would think of. If you had to choose one verb to say, this is what Jesus' life was all about. This is what he primarily did. We would say, well, maybe he taught, he healed, he served, 
He loved. He forgave. All of those things are true. But the word that the Bible actually uses to summarize the entirety of Jesus' life is this word, suffered. He suffered. Isaiah 53, in the passage that uh, we have in front of us, so much so that as the prophet uh, is, is depicting the day in which Israel's Messiah would come, in verse 3 we're told that he's a man of suffering. A man of suffering. And this is how many of the New Testament writers, both in the Gospels and the Epistles, came to understand and summarize all of Jesus' life in one word. In fact, in Luke 24, uh, after, spoiler alert, resurrection, uh, Jesus comes back from the dead, and there's two of his followers that are walking along this road, and Jesus kind of casually comes up and joins the conversation. And they're talking about all this stuff that's gone down with with the crucifixion of this so-called king of the Jews. And uh, as Jesus is walking, they don't recognize him. And what we're told in Luke 24 is that he said to them, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all, all that the prophets have spoken. Didn't the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them that what was said in the scriptures concerning himself. So, so interesting. Out of Jesus' own mouth, if he has two things to say about the nature and the meaning of his uh, mission and life on earth, he says, first of all, I had to suffer all these things, and secondly, I'm going to enter into the glory uh, of my Father. His entire life, he, in his own words, summarizes as suffering these things. And you can kind of pick up in his tone, not kind of, He's a little frustrated, right? How foolish you are. You still don't get it. You've been studying the Jewish scriptures. You've been part of this story. You saw my life. You saw my death, and you still don't recognize me. And if he seems a little irritated, you understand. I've come and suffered for you, and you still aren't paying attention. In verse 3 again, Jesus, the one who would come one day, despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised, and we held him in low esteem. So it's fascinating to actually take this this word from the creed and say, let's let that shape the way we engage the story of Jesus in the Gospels. Because I think this is really easy to miss. How much Jesus' life was marked by suffering. And not just at the end, not just at Passion Week, but from the very beginning. A man who knew pain. A man who knows what it is to be rejected. A man who knows what it is to be despised to be hated, for people to wish you were dead. I think you could clearly say Jesus was the victim of bullying throughout his entire life from all different sides. He knows exactly what that's like. Familiar with pain. On top of that, 
In verse 2, he had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should despise. Isaiah basically tells us that Jesus was not a good-looking guy, which is a really weird idea. I don't know what we typically think of when we picture Jesus, but we probably picture him as a rugged, handsome carpenter who's got flowing hair and an awesome like Pacific Northwest beard. And <laughs> this basically says there's a very good chance he's a short, hairy, balding, Middle Eastern man with a beer belly and a big nose. I mean, there is nothing attractive about him. Now, that's, I've, I was uh, studying this passage with a group of women in our church who are leaders, and I was surprised at how upset they were about this, right? Because they wanted p- this picture of Jesus as this kind of knight in shining armor, handsome guy. But, I mean, clearly we're told there is, he was not a good-looking guy. There was nothing attractive about him. And so by describing Jesus' life as one of suffering, the biblical authors, Jesus himself, and the formers of this creed, they save us from picturing Jesus as some otherworldly, supernatural hero to which we would never have any chance of relating. But by presenting him as a really normal dude, not real good-looking, Hated, despised, bullying, rejected. We get this picture, as 1 Peter 4 says, of a man who suffered in his body. That's the Jesus whom we confess and commit our trust to in belief. And so the first thing I would say is this, that in the life of Jesus... God willingly enters into the suffering of humanity. Up until this point in the creed, we haven't talked about sin. We haven't talked about the fall. We haven't talked about anything that's broken yet. Everything seems pretty good, but we, again, as we read the scriptures through this lens, we understand that everything was not good and that in Christ, God reveals himself as a God of love, a God of compassion, a God of forgiveness, a God of mercy, and a God of justice. And he does that by becoming human and living among us as a suffering servant. Which, of course, we take incredible comfort in, right? Several places in the scriptures that call our attention to the idea that because Jesus knows what it's like to be human, he knows what it's like to be to be rejected. He knows what it's like to hurt and to lose. That he's able to sympathize with us. That we're able to find comfort as we sang, hope even in the valley, knowing that he is here with us in those moments. And so we know that this suffering marked his life, but as the next lines in the creed call us to, it's also a suffering that marked his death. And so he didn't just suffer in general, but we're told specifically that he suffered under Pontius Pilate, which may seem like a strange, obscure, insignificant uh, fact to post in this creed, which for the most part is kind of really inspirational theological language, and then we're introduced to this political character. Why is that so significant? I think there's a few reasons. We can't hit them all. But the thing that 
I think is most helpful about the mention of Pilate is that it sets the story of Jesus within human history. Jesus comes and lives at a specific place and a specific time among a specific group of people. So by affirming our belief that he suffered under Pontius Pilate, we're saying we could go back and figure out who was Pilate, where did he live, what era did he reign in, who was he responsible over, and that is the exact place and time in history where the Jesus story goes down. Now here's why that's important. Because the Jesus story doesn't begin once upon a time. And it doesn't begin a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. That's how fairy tales begin. That's how myths begin. They aren't so so, uh, set on the idea that these things had to have happened in human history, in real time and real space, but stories, fairy tales, myths, movies, novels, all these stories that we can learn from, be inspired by, find truth in, they don't have to be historically true in order to be helpful. But the framers of the creed and especially the authors of the gospels go way out of their way to make sure we know this is not a myth, this is not a metaphor, this is not a fairy tale from which we can draw inspiration and meaning even if it never happened. They're saying this is a story that went down in human history, in our time, in our space, particular people, particular place. So it's not even just that the Jesus story is based on a true story. It is a true story. And if it's not, then it's actually, uh, it's of no help to us at all. And so why does that matter? That the story of Christ's life, death, suffering isn't mythical or metaphorical. The reason it matters is because the problems in the world aren't metaphorical. The suffering that you and I are facing is not metaphorical. We do not need a metaphorical God or Savior. We need a real one. The world has real problems, real suffering, which requires a real Savior. And so we affirm not just that this is an inspirational uh, story, but this is a story that is rooted in the soil of the planet we walk on. And so this Savior, this suffering God, this salvation is brought about by this next word, crucifixion. The most public violent, humiliating execution method that humans have ever come up with? What could we do to cause the greatest amount of pain and suffering physically, mentally, and emotionally upon a human being? The practice of crucifixion. In fact, such a painful experience that they had to create a new word to describe the level of pain. Excruciating means of the cross. And so again, follow this story. Great God Almighty, Father, maker of heaven and earth, reduces himself, sends his son 
lives a life marked by suffering. Suffers under Pilate, comes to this horrible, painful, excruciating experience in his death. For Protestants, um, which most of us would identify, when we think about the cross, when we uh, hang up images of the cross in our homes or wear them around our necks or tattoo them on our bodies, it's most often an empty cross, isn't it? But for many Christians around the world, and the Catholic tradition has retained this uh, in a a significant way, that instead of an empty cross, the sign or the symbol of our salvation is a crucifix, Christ on the cross. Last year when we were in Italy and Germany for the 500th anniversary of the Reformation, spent hours and hours for days walking through art galleries and museums and cathedrals and was just over, I was overwhelmed by how many gruesome depictions there were of Christ's death on the cross. The truth is, growing up Protestant, I saw a cross a lot, but it was an empty cross. And they're not exactly paintings you want to look at, right? They're ugly. They're, it's, it's not pleasant. It's not aesthetically pleasing to watch a picture of somebody being tortured to death. But there was this one particular crucifix that stood out to me. and it was, We were in the city of Florence at the San Marco Museum. Uh, it used to be a convent, and they've turned it into this beautiful gallery and museum, all kinds of Renaissance artwork. And if you go into the convent, there's this series of little rooms, basically prayer rooms, where saints of old would go and lock themselves in these little rooms for days just to practice the presence of God. And in each one of these rooms, there's this classic Renaissance fresco. It was done by a guy named Angelico. And he walks through basically the whole story of Christ's life with an image in each room depicting his birth and different parts all the way to his life. And in room 37 is the depiction of Christ's crucifixion. And you can't go into the room. They've kind of got them blocked off but you can stand outside in the hallway and the way that the light comes in through the window and shines uh, on these images, they're just mesmerizing. And I don't know how long I stood there, maybe 20 or 30 minutes, um, in a very significant way, just trying to ponder the meaning of this moment. looking at Jesus' face, looking at Jesus' body. A man of suffering who knows pain like the world, like no one else in the world ever has. And the creed, as I said, doesn't take a lot of time to say, here's why Jesus died. Here's what happened. And it doesn't take any time to go, here's all the different theories of atonement of how this moment accomplishes salvation or forgiveness. Uh, We can kind of get there as we get to the end of the creed, but for now it simply just states Jesus died. He died. When the creator God of the universe translates himself 
into a human, a perfect human, a human of love and justice who comes and suffers and lives among us. The world had gotten so bad that this is what we did to him. It's what Peter proclaims when he preaches the gospel in Acts 2. This God who you have killed. And so there's a million conversations and questions we could uh, wrestle with around the meaning of Christ's death. But the creed simply calls us to say, it happened that Jesus died. And for me, one of the conclusions would be we are facing so much suffering in our own lives and around the world. Some of you today are facing death in the realest way possible. Your own, those that are close to you. And it's in those moments of our suffering, of facing death, that it's like somehow God wants to meet us in those places. That even though they're horrible, they're what you might call thin places. Where we see Christ on the cross. And so I would say it this way, that when it comes to the question of why God allows so much suffering in our lives or in the world, we don't know what the answers are, but we know what the answers aren't. Because sometimes we assume that when the world's going to hell and life is hard and we're dying and people around us are dying, that either God doesn't care or that God isn't good or that God isn't even around or involved at all or that God is cursing us or that God isn't strong enough to do anything about the pain and brokenness and suffering in the world, we start thinking, well, maybe that's the answer. Maybe I can't trust God after all. Maybe he's not good after all. But when you look at Jesus on the cross, we don't know what the answers are of why pain and suffering happen in our lives, but we know what the answer can't be. And it can't be that God doesn't love us or doesn't care. And so for me, this has become an incredible source of strength and hope and comfort. I've walked through some hard times. Some of you guys have walked through much harder times and are maybe in them right now. But I've come to deeply believe that Jesus didn't suffer so that we don't have to, but so that when we do, we can meet him there. And I know from walking with so many of you guys over the last several years that some of the hellish places you've been through, the death, the experience of loss, the divorce, the abuse, all the stuff that you're, you're dealing with, it's like you would never wish that upon anyone else and you would never want to walk through it again. But I've heard from so many of you that it was in that place of facing death that Jesus was the closest, where I knew his presence, I knew his love, and I knew that he was with me, and that was enough. We're told finally that as he's crucified, dies, buried, the line 
is that he descended to the dead. And uh, some translations of the creed say that he descended into hell. And there's a lot of controversy and conversation about the meaning of that and what happened. But I think at the very least, what the authors and framers of the creed are trying to say is that Jesus' death was a real death. He wasn't playing dead when he went into the tomb. But he descended to the dead, that he was just as dead as you and I are uh, when that day comes for us. And so even the worst thing that can happen to us and in our lives, Jesus knows what it's like to be dead. And the hope for us as those who are in Christ is that, as Paul said, to live as Christ and to die is even better. That we meet him in that place. We die with him. And we believe that one day we'll rise again with him. And so for those of you, and I kind of like the idea of Jesus descending into hell. I don't really know if that happened. But I think it's amazing because sometimes I feel like I'm in hell. And sometimes he meets me there and rescues me. And so we'll come to the table this morning. I want to close with an invitation from M.T. Wright. As we reflect on the meaning of Jesus' death, he says this, that when Jesus wanted to explain to his followers the meaning of his death, he didn't give them a theory, he gave them a meal. Talking about the Last Supper, before Jesus' crucifixion, he doesn't get up and say, hey, here's how atonement works. He says, here's my body and my blood, broken and poured out for you. So you stand with me and I'll invite you to come to the table as we respond. Lord Jesus, what an incredible display of the craziest kind of love that we could ever imagine. That when you came to us, you didn't come big and strong and handsome and successful. But you came despised. You came rejected. You came hated. And if we're honest, there's part of us that has added to that as well. But we thank you that in your great love and your mercy and compassion, you reduced yourself in obedience to the Father, even to death on a cross. Not grasping your equality with God, but in a very strange way, somehow giving it to us as well. That we now find ourselves in you, in relationship with your Father, members of your family, participants in your mission. And we reflect and remember this morning on how great a cost it was to you, your life and death of suffering. But we are so grateful that there's nowhere we can go that you haven't been and where we can't find you. So we trust in your presence and in your unfailing love this morning. In Jesus' name.